All right. So as you can see from the title, I'm going to use some religious imagery today to talk about uh, resisting the devil and uh, connecting that with the inner critic. So, again, I'm just going to give people <clears throat> a few moments to jump on. Hope you're doing well. By the way, thank you, everyone that has supported this channel that's supported what we're doing. Thank you for the donations. Some of you have committed to monthly donations, and that has really, really helped. If you like the work that I'm doing and want to help me keep it out there for free for people, uh, then please consider donating to, <clears throat> excuse me, please consider donating to New Day Global. You can find the PayPal link in the description below. And again, we appreciate, uh, however much it is, if it's $1, $5, $500. Um, we're just so appreciative to all of you that have supported us. And again, if you appreciate what we're doing and you'd like to help us with a one-time gift or monthly gift, then please uh, do so with the link that's in the description. So uh, we'll see how the title goes over. It's funny to watch. <clears throat> Sometimes when people go through deconstruction, they go through it in phases. <laughs> Uh, and invariably, <clears throat> they get to this phase where, particularly if you come from the uh, prophetic movement, the Pentecostal movement, any of these areas that really emphasize spiritual warfare and the devil is attacking you, or you've got to go and fight with the devil and pull down strongholds. And I was always very keen to the fact, even when I was deep into believing and practicing my faith and teaching it to other people, <clears throat> I was always aware of the fact that these models that we were being given in books on prayer and spiritual warfare was mostly BS. It was mostly baloney. Um, in fact, and I say that because that's not how the Bible itself even teaches <laughs> about the devil or about spiritual warfare or anything like that. But particularly if something into all of that, eventually they reach a phase in their deconstruction process where they do away with the devil altogether. And so I've, I've observed that over the years, people putting posts like the devil left me alone when I stopped believing in the devil. <clears throat> and it's almost like we, we have to make the devil as imaginary as we're making God as we're going through this process, particularly if we become atheists or scientific materialists. You'll notice, I think, that I've never really done much of that, because uh, the devil actually, for me, is a figure that uh, I think has value, <laughs> that I still find value with, and that I think still operates and is active, although not in the traditional Christian sense. So, if you're asking me, Aaron, do you believe in a guy with a pitchfork that's running around, um, tormenting people, making your refrigerator break down, making you get a flat tire, uh, putting depression on you, those kinds of things. No, I don't believe in that. In fact, uh, I've done some teaching on this in the past, and you can find it in my channel, where I talk about what the Lucifer archetype really is <laughs> from Isaiah 14, and sort of how this mythology of this figure of the devil um, came into being. But in all honesty, the creation of the devil, the creation of Satan, within Christian mythology, was always socio-political. That's why you, you, you can't find images or descriptions of the devil in the Bible that match anything that is embedded in our minds in the Western world today. It's also why you can't find any descriptions of spiritual warfare in the Bible like what is being taught out there today. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the scholar. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, mm, I can't believe I can't remember her name. There's a book out there called The Origin of Satan and um, Elaine Pagels. Yeah, there we go. Elaine Pagels does a great job of explaining how even from the very beginning, this idea of Satan was very socio-political, that it was being used against the pagans. Even from the very beginning, even from the writings of Justin Martyr, they were taking the pagan gods and turning them into the devil and turning them into demons. But they weren't doing it for theological reasons. They were doing it for social and political reasons. Now, as colonialism spread throughout Europe, then this imagery that we get of the devil, and I did a whole video on this, 
is generally the horned god. He's red or green, <clears throat> has horns, has a tail, looks half human, half animal. That's actually depictions of pagan nature deities that were worshipped. So as particularly when you look at the Celtic lands, as Roman Catholicism began to spread through the Celtic lands, they took their gods, their figures, and demonized them, turned them into devils. So the imagery and the beliefs that we have about this being that's overseeing this other legion or armies of other dark and evil beings that is out to deceive humanity so that they don't believe the gospel, so they don't believe in Jesus. That's all how all of that came about. So I reject that outright. I reject that completely. Um, but I reject it as part of sort of colonialism or Christian nationalism or, again, the way I'm looking for my coffee. Oh, there we go. <laughs> the way Christians uh, have used that to go against other groups of people. But that doesn't mean that I don't believe in a devil at all. So, or even in the biblical sense. And again, this talk will be perfect for people that are religious or aren't religious. I'm just using this this morning because it is Sunday morning to, as a springboard for what I want to get to the, talking about, but I promise it's going to be very practical and helpful to everybody. So just hang in there with me for a little bit. Because <clears throat> what I wanted to talk about, and it's in the title, is is silencing your inner critic, silencing your inner accuser. All of us probably have an inner critic. All of us have a voice that speaks rather loudly, I might say, especially in the beginning, in our minds and in our hearts that is condemning, judgmental, accusing of other people, condemning, judgmental, and accusing of other people, but also condemning, judgmental, and accusing of ourselves. And so we're surrounded by negativity all the time, especially on social media, right? Especially if you're a figure on social media and you're putting your opinion out there, somebody's going to come with criticism and judgment, and some of it's really ridiculous. I've had friends that were criticized for their appearance. Uh, I've been criticized because I have a bookshelf in my background. Uh, when I didn't have a bookshelf, I was criticized for the decorations that I had in my uh, downstairs dining room. So, I mean, it's just ridiculous how we are just swimming in a tidal wave of negativity. And actually, then, and I've been on, you know, it's it's not like I haven't ever been on this side of it either. So I'm not pointing the finger at anybody out there in a sort of virtue signaling or self-righteous sort of way. But we can also become the voice of the accuser in our attempt to help people who are deconstructing or who want to deconstruct or because we see the harm and the hurt that religion has done that or the faith, the religious abuse, the things that we've been talking about. And if we're not careful, then we start using our social media platform as a voice for the devil, as a voice of accusation, judgment, condemnation, superiority, all that stuff. So at the root cause of a lot of what caused the pain when we were in Christianity was our air of superiority that we inherited <clears throat> in part due to this socio-political creation of the devil that made us feel superior and cut us off from our empathy and understanding or willingness to try to see the world through the eyes of other people, much less see the world through the eyes of cultures and belief systems that were completely different than our own. It became very convenient to demonize them. So shift to atheism. A lot of people who shift to atheism out of Christianity never really deal with the root painful issue because the root painful issue, if we're honest, is thinking that we're right in a self-righteous sort of way and that other people just don't get it or that other people are stupid. And so we start using our platforms, we start using our social media, as a device of the devil to contribute to this accusation, this negativity, this condemnation. And again, if that I'm not trying to make you feel accused or condemned, I'm just pointing it out that we can end up doing the same kind of harm because the root issue isn't really always just what we believe, but it's the spirit that we carry within ourselves, and it's those deeper level embedded issues of pride, arrogance, 
sense of superiority and things like that that cause us to want to attack other people. So when I'm talking about the devil, I believe the devil in that sense then is not only alive and well, but is very active, is very active around us and in society and in the, on social media. But also what I want to talk about today is how it's very active within us and it's the activity of the devil within us, the inner critic, the inner judge, the inner accuser that we don't recognize. So I'm going to go ahead and use some scripture to lay this out for you. So what is consistently, if I were to ask you this question, what is it consistently, what is the weapon that the devil in scripture as it's portrayed from a Christian perspective? What is the tool or the weapon, the key thing that the devil always uses? And I can hear somebody say deception. I want, and I want you to step back from deception and even before that, even on a more simplistic level than that, what is the weapon that the devil uses? And you, you'll find something very interesting as I take you through a survey of some of the scriptures. And if, if scripture triggers you right now, uh, just hang in there with me, please. You, you can come back. You can fast forward over this part to get to the end because I'm going to leave it in just a minute. But I want to use this to lay a foundation for it because it's very interesting. In the Bible, the devil or this character that is identified correctly or incorrectly, as the devil has one thing that this entity consistently uses, and that is words, the power of words. So let's just look at it in the beginning from the Christian perspective. I know there's many different ways to interpret the Garden of Eden story about Adam and Eve and the serpent. Um and I don't even think this is the best way, but it's the most common way. It's the most common way. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve comes along and has a conversation with the talking serpent, right? But that's the point. It's a conversation. It's an exchange of words. And it says the serpent, who later is identified as the devil in Christian tradition, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, in the day you eat of that tree, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So prior to this moment, when they had heard what God said about the tree, the tree only meant for them death. So, of course, they're not going to eat from it because God said in the day you eat of it, you're going to die. So, of course, they hadn't eaten from it. And then the serpent comes along and says, no, God knows in the day you eat of it. He said he framed something with his words. In the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. That's the whole game of religion, by the way. It's the whole game of religion. I drop a video tomorrow I think, where I talk about this. We're eating at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Bible study, church, uh, you know, trying to discern, uh, break everything down into this frame of good and evil so that we could be more Christ-like, so that we could be more God-like. And then it just produces in us judgment, shame, all the stuff that we're going to talk about. But I want the next part of this is very important. So I'm going to bring it around again because I really want you to see this. God knows in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. And it says, when the woman saw. So the when there is very important. The next verse, when the woman saw that the tree was pleasing to the eyes and good for food and desirable to make one wise. So first off, where did she get the idea that it was desirable to make one wise? She got it from the words of the serpent. But what's so interesting is it says when she saw. So she had been seeing that tree differently. Her perspective was completely different. Her perception was completely different. What had happened was, was that she had heard words from the serpent coming from outside of her that she then internalized and made part of her inner dialogue, which changed her perception of reality. In other words, she saw the tree exactly as the serpent had described it. But it's when she saw it. So prior to the serpent describing it that way, she perceived it differently. But when she heard those words, her perception changed. So here's the point. Those words did two things. 
well, at least two things. The first thing that it did was it cast a spell on her. You can think about it like this. The, the words of the serpent cast a spell on Eve. There's a reason that we call it spelling when it comes to words. There's a reason the etymology there, it's connected because when we're using words, whether we realize it or not, we are spelling. We are spelling ourselves. We are spelling other people. We are being spelled by other people. And so this is exactly what happens in the garden. The serpent sort of puts a spell on Eve so that when she saw what he said, her perceptions changed. That's the first thing. Changed her perceptions, put a spell on her. The second thing was she internalized it and it made it part of her own internal dialogue. That's a tree that's good for food, that's pleasing to the eyes. It's good for food. It's desirable to make one wise. And it wasn't until she internalized it and became, it became a part of her internal dialogue that she ate from the fruit of the tree. So that's the first uh, situation where we really see a devil from the Christian perspective in Scripture. And devil's using the power of words. Now, if you were to go and look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness... This is also very interesting because Jesus hears a word from the Father. The heavens open up, he gets baptized, the Spirit descends upon him, and he hears the word of the Father say, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my Son. Then it says he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he was hungry. He he starved himself. He fasted. And it says, When the devil came to him, he brought him a buffet of food. No, it doesn't say that. Uh, it says, eat. You know, I command you to eat. It says, he brought him devil's food cake, right? Uh, here you go, Jesus. You're so hungry. I can see you're salivating over there. This is such a great plate of food right here. Uh, he, he came with, uh, uh, I don't know, his, his legion of enemies like Job and he smote him with, um, boils all over his skin. No, that's not what it says. It says the devil came to him and the devil said something to him. This is important. God said, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The devil comes to Jesus and the devil uses the only weapon the devil has. That's words. That's messages. It's language. It's spelling. And he says he brings him stones. He's hungry and he brings him stones for food. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been hungry and thought, man, I could sure could eat a rock right now. (laughs) So what's he do? He says, if you are the son of God. Command these stones that they be made bread. And in all three of the temptations, you see that the devil is trying to introject words into Christ that cause him to question his authentic identity. So that's the second case study to prove my point from Scripture, from a Christian perspective. And I'm almost done. I'll quit torturing those of you that get triggered by this in a second. The third one is what Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul's thorn in the flesh. There's been all this debate for centuries. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Some say it was homosexuality. Some say it was a sin he couldn't give up, like homosexuality. Some say that it was the uh, Pharisees that were attacking him and, uh, you know, undermining his message, infiltrating his churches. Some say it was an eye disease. They pulled something out of Galatians where... You know, they try to imply that he had this eye disease that he couldn't get rid of. Some say it was, you know, some other kind of sickness or whatever. But actually, it's in the text. He tells us exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. He says, uh, lest I be exalted above measure, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And he defines it in the very next word, a messenger of Satan, a messenger of Satan. So what does a messenger do? By definition, a messenger delivers messages. So if Eve was tempted with a message designed to distort her perceptions and become an internalized interject inside of her, if Jesus was tempted with messages that were attacking who he believed he was and was meant to distort his perception of himself and become an internalized interjected message, then it makes sense that Paul's getting the same thing and even says it when he says it's a messenger of Satan. So it's very simple to understand from my perspective what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. So that's the biblical side of this. Let me give you a psychological side of this. I talked about this last week in my video. 
we deal with uh, what early psychoanalysts identified in consciousness, in our minds, in our hearts, this thing called an introject. Introject. Intro, like to introduce something. Inject, meaning to uh, send it somewhere. So, ject, to eject, right? To reject, to deject. It's, it's, it's doing something with something to project. It's outward, right? But introject is when someone introduces a message into our thinking and we agree with it. And we agree with it so powerfully that it becomes a part of our in, own internal world, almost like a living entity. I talked about this last week with images and things that we have. We can have images, uh, characters inside our inner world, populating our inner world. That could be spiritual teachers. That could be uh, parents. That could be uh, school teachers, coaches, uh, our abuser. Uh, situ- our abuser, anyone that's been through uh, any kind of consistent abuse, you have an introject, you have an abuser that stands there and judges you and accuses you that's a character that's populating your world. But it's it, it's not yours originally. It wasn't yours originally. It was given to you. It was introduced into your uh, life, and you formed an agreement, you formed an attachment with it, and so now it has a life of its own, and it's speaking to you inside your mind. So all of us have what I'm calling in this video the inner critic. Uh, it's an introjection. It's something that was introduced to us to cause us to think less of ourselves. Again, back to the Garden of Eden story. God says, uh, where are you, Adam? He doesn't say, what have you done? He says, where are you, Adam? And then he says, uh, "What?" what <laughs> Adam says, I hid myself because I was naked. And then very subtly, the Lord says, who told you you were naked? Who told you? Well, the answer there is the introject. The introject that he got from meeting at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The agreements that were established with outside external devilish demonic voices in the sense that I'm using the term devilish and demonic. You understand what I'm saying? Now, for people that don't, I'm, I'm using it all metaphorically. I'm using it all as a myth to teach. Uh, for people that don't believe and that kind of stuff at all. Just get the, the psychological concept. Get the the psychological concept that we live in this world around us. We've been criticized. We've been given messages from the world around us. We form agreements with those messages, which then distorts our perceptions of reality and then gives birth to an inner dialogue, an inner critic, a voice, again, that speaks quite loudly in our minds. Now, as a psychotherapist, one of the things that I had to realize uh, pretty early on, I guess, but I, I always have to keep in mind, when I'm talking to someone and doing therapy with someone, I have to ask myself this question. Am I doing therapy with this person? Or am I doing therapy with an interject? Or you say it this way. When we're talking and having conversation that's supposed to be therapeutic, am I working with the real person or am I working with their inner critic? Or in some cases, am I working with a real person or am I working with their abusive mother? Am I working with their abusive father? Am I working with their abusive intimate partner? Because the question becomes, <clears throat> are we talking authentically about you and your experience or are we just regurgitating the voices in your head that actually never were originally you, but were interjects that came into you that you then agreed with, that then became uh, judge, jury, and executioner inside your own head. And if I realize I'm doing therapy with an interject, then we have to figure out a way to work through that, because the goal of the therapy then at that point becomes to help the person silence or at least minimize or turn down the volume on the voice of the inner critic and the voice of the accuser, the voice of the mother or the voice of the religious figure or what the voice of the abuser or whatever it is, but they think it's their own voice. It can even sound like their own voice in their head. It can sound like them. So it feels like it's authentically coming from them. And until you can address those things, there's really not any progress much, in my opinion, <clears throat> that can be made. 
with what we're doing. So that's the psychological perspective. I want to give you one more perspective. I had some of these things in my mind uh, over the weekend, and I sat down and read uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's classic book, um, The Four Agreements. If you've never read The Four Agreements, uh, I strongly suggest that you go pick it up. There are two types of people in the world. There are people who've read The Four Agreements and try to live them, and there's people who haven't. <laughs> so if you've never read it, it's a very small book. I read it, I think, in an hour uh, yesterday or maybe a little bit over that. It was very small, very simple read. But in the beginning of the book, he, he talks about this process, and he talked about it in such a way that I thought was so good and fits so well with what we've been talking about that I wanted to share it. So I'll spend the rest of the time as I'm describing this process, trying to come at it from very different ways for different people in the audience. Uh, so I'm going to describe it the way he describes it because I think it, he does such a great job of explaining it. And I see Ben says, yeah, you got to love Toltec wisdom, right? So uh, that's, that's like the subtitle of the book or the reason he wrote the book was to get Toltec, ancient Mexican wisdom keeper, spirituality, technologies, just healthy living that comes from ancient people uh, and the tradition that he's a part of and puts it in a very simple form called the Four Agreements. So the way he describes it is he says that every human being is dreaming all the time. Now, this is a common theme throughout all spiritual traditions that consciousness is primary. Matter and everything else is secondary. Now, here, here's what I mean, because I know people misunderstand me when I'm saying this. I'm not saying primary in the sense that it is better than, or secondary in the sense that material is, the material world or matter is less than. I'm not trying to reinforce a divide. I don't know if those of you that are in the Facebook group saw the post that uh, Doug Wentz put about the difference between the Piscean Age and the Aquarian Age, or what he calls the Age of Osiris and the Age of Horus. Um, it's really brilliantly done. I encourage you to go check it out. But he, he's talking about how, you know, the spiritualities of the past age wanted us to reject matter, wanted us to reject our bodies, wanted us to reject uh, materialism and stuff like that. So I'm not assigning superiority when I say primary. What I'm saying is, is that it is base reality for all of us. And I'm not saying this because I have some great insight to the nature of the universe and the nature of reality. I'm saying this because it's completely self-evident. And so it's something that we can agree upon. What I'm saying is this. That, and when I talk about consciousness, I'm not just talking about the intellect. I'm talking about Everything that we experience in life, everything that we experience in life is experienced through the lens of consciousness. The fact that I'm aware of my body is a form of metacognition. It's a form of consciousness, that awareness, the fact that I can say that. See, I'm aware of my body. Where did I begin? I began with awareness. I can't have a theory about the nature of reality. I can't have a teaching about the ages of anything if consciousness is not involved. So every experience you've ever had, being taught anything you were ever taught, experiencing the greatest sex you ever experienced, the taste of coffee, which you can, guys can tell I really like coffee in the mornings. Thoughts and thinking about reality, conversations, interactions, fellowship, communion, spiritual experiences, non-spiritual experiences, if you've never had any. All of that is in your particular frame of reference, your particular point of consciousness, your particular point of awareness, which is different than mine. And I can't know yours unless you share it with me, and you can't know mine unless I share it with you. I talked about this last week. But this is the area, this is the arena, our unique point of experience, our unique point of consciousness is primary. 
to everything else because the experience has come second. If the experience didn't come second, we wouldn't be able to experience the experience. This is why I think a lot of spirituality that just teaches oneness is, uh, is logically does not work itself out. It can't because in order to have any level of experience, you cannot experience oneness ever because if you truly merge and become one, you can't have the experience because to have the experience, there has to be the experience and the experiencer to have the memory of the experience, which requires time and space. So this idea that you can just ascend and get outside of time and space and just become one with deity and even remember it is a logical fallacy. It's it's ridiculous. It doesn't bear out. It doesn't bear out. It doesn't work. Because in order to come back and talk about that experience or say that you had that experience, it you have to have a memory of the experience. And the moment you have a memory of it, you're back in time and space. All right. I'll let you work that out for you. But... Back to the Toltec wisdom. He says we're all dreaming. So he's basically saying the, the same thing, that fundamentally we all have a dream. And it's my job to protect my dream. It's my job to work with my dream. It's my job to fulfill my dream. That's it. That's really it. <laughs> That's really it. And yet, we spend so much time trying to work on someone else's dream, particularly if we're codependent. We want someone else to dream what we're what, the way we think they should. We want them to think the way we think they should. We want them to act and talk and speak and do and all this stuff the way that we want them to, rather than allowing them to have their own experience and their own dream. And while I'm out there busy fixing everybody else, I'm ignoring what's going on inside of me. I did that for a lot of years. It was called ministry. <laughs> so this isn't something I read in a book. So he talks about we have the individual dream. That's what I'm talking about. Your individual consciousness, my individual consciousness. There's a boundary there. There's a uh, what Bernardo Castro calls a dissociative boundary there. I can't read your thoughts. You can't read my thoughts. So then Don Miguel Ruiz talks about the world dream, the dream of the world, the dream of the world. That there is a world dream. This is the dream of society. This is the dream of every culture. This is the dream of every family. And he talks about how we're born into the world dream. So many layers to that. My family had a way of thinking. They had a way of doing things. They had a value system. They had things that were important to them, things that weren't important to them. And it was uniform, right? And I was born into that. And then my culture had a dream of what it meant to be a family unit that existed within the rural culture in which I was raised. That's the cultural dream. And then there was the American dream, not just uh, the American dream, right? Uh, the dream of American exceptionalism. And you can just keep going on and on and on. And we're all affected. And the way Don Miguel Ruiz talks about it, we are all infected. By the world dream. So you didn't even choose your own name, he points out in the book. You didn't choose your own language. That was all programming. So introjection has its place. It's not all bad or negative. You wouldn't be able to speak if there was no introjection. You wouldn't know your own name, literally, if there was no introjection, because you didn't give any of that to yourself. Think about it. You didn't even pick the language that you speak. And remember, we talked about how language creates spells. So you wouldn't be able to read, you wouldn't be able to think, you wouldn't be able to communicate if you didn't have those introjections. It's the same process. But then he goes on to point out that in this dream of the world, in this dream of your family, in this dream of religion, right, in whatever dream it is that you participated in, there is a set of social and relational agreements and arrangements that we begin to agree with and our agreement with these things becomes the book of the law, what he calls the book of the law, internally. Internally, the book of the law. This is the law for me. This is the standards to which I'm being held because of the dream 
of the world around me. And I agree with, I make agreements with it. And that creates for me an internal book of the law. And when I go against that book of the law, and it's a perfect book, it's perfectionism. Uh, it's always looking your best. It's always making sure that, uh, ladies, you might relate to this, some of you the ladies, uh, or gentlewomen, I was told that I'm not supposed to use that term anymore. <laughs> Book of the law. Uh, actually just illustrated it, if you caught it. But <clears throat> some of you uh, ladies out there, you'll catch on to this. Like, there are some people, they, they won't go to the store. They won't go to get a jug of milk at the store, at the corner store, unless they've, you know, uh, done their makeup and uh, print, print their hair and whatever. So because there's this perfectionist idea, I have to be looking my best and presenting my best self, my perfect self at all times, uh, everywhere that I go. And if I don't, if I just say, you know, I won't run into anybody and then I, you know, look, uh, I don't look my best. It's clear that guys today don't do this. Um, somebody help me out. I mean, maybe it's different where you live, but how did the preppy generate? What happened to you, Gen X? How'd you go from pretty in pink guys and the preppy generation to being fat slobs? <laughs> okay, okay. I just let the devil speak through me. What I mean is like we don't seem to care about style anymore. So men don't relate to this as much, but women, <clears throat> women definitely probably maybe relate to this more. <clears throat> Does that make sense to you? So we buy into this perfectionism of the dream of the world around us. We agree with it. That becomes the book of the law. And every time we don't follow what's in the book of the law, we have an inner judge that judges us according to the law and pronounces a verdict on us. So there's three parts. There's the internalized book of the law, which is, all the internalization of all the social rules and regulations and things that are around me, right? That's the book of the law. Then when I violate those things, there is an internal judge that stands up and says, this is the interjection, the judge, stands up and says, this is the devil, the judge. This is the accuser, stands up and says, uh, you didn't do right there, you didn't do it perfectly there. And pronounces a verdict, something like, you should be ashamed of yourself. God, you're so ugly. God, you're so fat. God, you're so whatever those things may be. You're so stupid. You know, you're putting yourself down. That's the judge. And then there's got to be a part of you that receives it. That's the victim. And that's the part that we miss. There's a part of you that receives it. And I want to focus on that as I start to bring things together for you. There's part, there's, there's the book of the law, there's the judge, and then whatever the judge says, negative, whatever the judge says that puts you down, whatever the judge says that accuses you, see the devil in operation. But when there's a hearer, there's, there's a receiver, there's a victim, there's an internal victim inside that hears those things and receives those condemnations, receives those verdicts, and very often receives the punishment that goes with it. Um, <clears throat> Don Miguel Ruiz in the book, he goes on to say that you will always only tolerate abuse that is just a little bit above the internal abuse that you're already doing to yourself. So if you've been in an abusive relationship, if you're really honest with yourself, I wonder, do you judge yourself? Is your self-talk filled with condemnation? Is your self-talk filled with accusation? Is your self-talk filled with guilt? Is your self-talk filled with shaming? The voice in your head. What is the voice in your head saying to you? And are you already being abused by an abuser that's not out there, but an abuser that's in here? And you just tolerated the abuser out there because they treated you just a little bit better. Then you treat yourself. That's not my idea. That was an idea that was in the book and I find it fascinating. So this structure within, he refers to it as being like a computer virus. 
He refers to it as being a parasite. I want to refer to it as a foreign entity that has invaded your space. Don Miguel Ruiz refers to it as a process, but that voice or those voices inside of you, I want to suggest are foreign invaders. And we need to treat them like foreign invaders. And I'll get a little bit into how to do this in a minute. And this is where some aspects of positive thinking, um, metaphysics, uh, new thought. This is where um, the books like The Power of Now can be helpful. This is where some Eastern spirituality, where we talk about the ego, can be helpful. But I want to really nuance this for you. Because the ego essentially is your consciousness. It's your point of perception. It's what you're entirely responsible for uh, creating and manifesting. People that tell you there's nobody inside, if, if you listen to a spiritual teacher that just keeps telling you to step back from all the voices in your head and eventually you find out there's nobody inside there, uh, I would encourage you to run from that person because that's a very specific cluster of clinical diagnoses that you don't want to mess around with. Um, you're kind of getting in the pen with the tiger or in the pit with the snakes. Because if there's nobody there, anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. I mean, that's in, and in that cluster of diagnoses where a person has no sense of self in there, uh, is where you find, um, clinical diagnoses for narcissistic personality disorder, which we've talked about, borderline personality disorder, uh, sociopathic, uh, personalities, and even psychopaths. Uh, there's no real self in there, although some research might take issue with that, with the psychopath. So I'm just saying that idea is proven clinically for decades to be extremely, extremely, extremely mentally and emotionally unhealthy. But this idea that you are not your mind always, that you are not your thoughts, that you are not your pain body, can be very helpful when you're dealing with an intruder or when you're dealing with an interject, or when you're dealing with the inner critic or the inner judge. So in other words, you don't just like detach from everything that's going on inside of you. That's not healthy. It's not. It's not going to be enriching for you. But there are times to recognize the voice that I'm hearing in my head, that is not the real me. The feelings that I'm feeling, the experiences, the internal experiences, the accusations, the condemnation, that is not the real me. And until I can differentiate between what is me and what is not me inside of me, I'm not really going to make any progress. doesn't matter what mental health practitioner I go to, what modality that I use. doesn't matter what, what self-help stuff I do, how many seminars I go to, what kind of meditation I do. If, if I'm still identifying with specifically, especially the inner critic or the interject or the voice inside my head as me, as reliable information, as accurate information, Instead of as, like we saw when I began this in the Garden of Eden, a distorted perception of myself, a a distorted, very distorted perception of reality that causes me to withdraw myself. So here's the process. Here's the process. Back to the Garden of Eden. I have some kind of spell put on me by people that love me, by people that want the best for me. By people that think they're doing a good thing by indoctrinating me into the dream of the world. And that becomes my lens. That becomes my perception. When Eve saw that the tree was good, that becomes my perception. And I hold it as my own. I think it's my own opinion. I think it's my own reality when, in fact, it was a spell. It's just a spell, right? When that happens, 
immediately judgment begins to happen. I internalize the book of the law, and then I look at all the things in my life that don't match up with the book of the law. I look at all the areas that I'm falling short of the dream of the world. And by the way, remember, this corporate dream is a fantasy. It's a fantasy. There's a book out there by Stephanie Kuntz. It's called The Way We Never Were. And it talks about how in American society and culture, we have this idealization, whether we realize it or not, of the 1950s. And this idea of the perfect nuclear family and, and the, you know, how, who we're supposed to be as men and women and all this various different stuff. And she, she says this in the, in the description, um, leave it to beaver was not a documentary. And so she says the way we never were. I love that because the dream of the world that we become entranced with, that we become spellbound, spellbound, that's a good word, that we become spellbound to, bound to a perception of who I'm supposed to be, bound to a perception of what my life's supposed to be like. There was never anything real about it. It's the way we never were. The entire thing is a fantasy. So we internalize this fantasy as our fantasy, and then we judge ourselves against that fantasy. And then we speak in voices, the voice of the judge, the voice of the inner critic, that condemns us when we don't measure up to the fantasy. So this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. This is exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. They ate of the fruit, and they saw themselves. And then it says something very interesting. It says they withdrew themselves and hid themselves and covered themselves. So this is more than just social hiding. I want you to think about this as an internal reality. I think Eden represents the internal world, mythologically, from a mythos perspective. And... So what happens is, is that the real you withdraws internally. The real you covers up and hides internally. The real you hides in the trees from the voice of the Lord. Go back and read it from this perspective. It's a fascinating tale. The real use covered up. The real use hiding. So when God tells Adam, who told you you were naked? What I want you to see is that the voice of the interject, the voice of the fantasy, the voice of the book of the law, the voice of the judge, or the voice of the devil becomes primary. That voice becomes the primary speaker. And in that sense then possesses you and takes you over (laughs) and rules your conduct and your expression. In other words, the introject, the inner critic, the judge, the devil takes on you as the avatar, takes on you as the costume, wears you as the mask, and then expresses itself throughout these various different aspects of your life was never really you. Now, this doesn't happen all the time. This doesn't happen all the time. It just happens in contexts. Like, for example, in the context that I used earlier, of the woman who goes to the store who has to always look perfect and doesn't and then runs into two or three people that she knows or runs into the uh, person that she's got a crush on or whatever and then all of a sudden feels those waves of shame and feels the whatever. Um, that whole thing was not really her, if you see what I'm saying. It was the, it was the inner critic, the inner judge, the inner demon, the inner devil, whatever, the introject, the message, the perception, taking over and acting. So here's the point I want you to get. These voices that you hear, that you identify with, a lot of them are not the real you. But the ones, that, and you say, well, how can I know? You can know in a couple of different ways. You can know by which ones are speaking the loudest 
especially if you've never done this kind of work before. Which voices inside my head are speaking the loudest? And how do I feel when I hear them? Which voices inside me are speaking the loudest and how do I feel when I hear them? Pretty good indicator. You found the voice of the serpent in your garden. So what do I have to do? I have to mute those. I have to turn those down. I have to break those agreements. And the other thing I have to do, well, that can be a very long process, right? Because we probably made thousands of agreements. So back to the four agreements, what the Toltec wisdom, what Don Miguel Ruiz is saying in his book is be impeccable with your word. That's the first agreement. Be impeccable with your word. Well, I had to look that word up too. <laughs> what exactly does impeccable mean? And my religious self got very triggered when I read it, and I had to keep reading in the chapter to understand what he meant. Because impeccable means, again, to be perfect or to be without sin. It's the best definition. To be without sin. It's actually what it literally means in its etymology. To be without sin. To be without sin in your word. Well, great. Now I'm back under Christianity. Now I'm back under word of faith. Now I'm back under uh, James chapter 3 or James chapter 1. If you can't control your tongue, you no know self-control, all that stuff. And it just felt icky. And here comes my inner judge, my inner critic, right? But he goes on to define this as sin, anything that you say harmful against yourself. Anything that you say harmful against yourself. And so he says you have to stop saying out loud harmful things about yourself. Just that commitment alone will empower you to break a bunch of these agreements and begin to silence that voice inside. But now, again, I can't just stop that internal dialogue from happening. But what I can do is I can step back from that internal dialogue. I don't have to agree with it anymore. I should probably challenge it when I become aware of it. In other words, I can make a commitment and understand you're not going to do this perfectly or you're falling back into the same. I don't want to put you in the same trap. When you become aware of it, challenge those voices, challenge those negative voices. Or here's an experiment. Think about something, a conversation that you had recently within the last day or two. Think about talking or interacting with someone in your life, a memory that you can access. It's very recent. Something Easy for you to access. Doesn't have to be recent. Maybe it was an important conversation. And I want you to see the other person in that memory as best you can. And I want you to hear the dialogue that's happening. I want you to hear that other person talking to you. Now, I want you to imagine that you have a volume switch in your brain where you can turn up that person's voice and make it louder. Make them shout at you what they're saying. Notice that you can do that. Notice how it changes the whole experience. Now, turn it down to a whisper. Notice how that changes the experience. Now, in your mind and in your memory, that person you're talking to, bring it up to maybe not shouting, but a louder volume. And then turn it back down. Notice what you can do. And one last thing, bring it up again. Now, make them sound like your favorite Disney character. I go back to the originals, Mickey Mouse, Goofy, Donald Duck. Make it sound like Donald Duck in your head. So my my point is you've got the entire power of editing inside your brain when you do it consciously. You could add a soundtrack to it. You could just the dialogue. You're the editor, producer, editor, of your own internal movies. And that's the kind of work that we have to learn to do. So we have to learn to silence. We have to identify this accusing voice is not me. And so being impeccable with my words then says, 
that I'm going to speak positively about myself and I'm going to allow myself to not to no longer live a domesticated life. See, those parts of you that are the real you. Remember, I said if, if uh, a lot of recovery is restoring the authentic self. And so here's what you need to realize. Um, Elijah experiences this when uh, it says Jezebel sent messengers to him. Now, if you read that as a literal story, then you think she's just sending out soldiers to tell Elijah that by sunrise or whatever that she's going to kill him, that he's going to be dead. And he runs and flees for his life in the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. But if you understand it mystically and metaphorically, like we're talking about in the same way that Paul said his thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan, Jezebel sends messengers to Elijah and says, you're going to die. So suicidal thoughts, the whole thing, 1 Kings 19 is about Elijah's internal dialogue. He goes into the cave despairing for his life and has this conversation. And in this conversation, you can tell what's going on in his thoughts. He says, I'm the only one who's faithful who's left. I'm the only one in Israel. So he was in complete isolation. He was in complete internal collapse. He was in complete depression and he was suicidal. All that stuff going on inside of him. And in the story, it says the Lord brings him into a cave and a giant wind comes up, very loud giant wind comes up. And Elijah goes and it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then there's a massive earthquake, right? And a shaking. And so he's looking at the earth and the earthquake and it says the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there's fire, and it says the Lord is not in the fire. And then it says, after all of that had been quieted, after the loud wind, after the rumbling of the earth, after the fire, after all of that, then it says, there came a still, small voice. There came a still, small voice that began to engage with him in dialogue and correct his perceptions of himself and his purpose and his mission. So here's my point. When I have all this stuff inside of me, it means that my voice has become still and small. And that's the challenge because we have to not only silence the loud voices of accusation and condemnation, we also need to amplify. We need to amplify the other voices the still small voices, the quiet voices. And that's so hard for us to do because we trust the loudest voice. We follow the loudest person in the room, internally I'm speaking. And because so much of our domestication was based on reward and punishment, it was instilled into us neurologically from a very young age that if we don't conform with these agreements, If we don't follow the agreements of the dream of the world around us, there will be pain and there will be punishment. It's the first thing that we learn. It's like it's like an on-off switch. So if I do this, there's going to be punishment for me. If I do this, there's going to be pain for me. Or the flip side can also be true. If I don't listen to the authoritative voice in my mind, If I don't listen to the judge, if I don't listen to the parent, if I don't listen to the spirit guide, if I don't listen to the uh, whatever the authority figure is that's been implanted in my brain, something bad or painful is going to happen to me. So we hold on to those voices and we embrace those voices because we believe that there is safety connected with them and we believe there is reward connected with them. Just like Eve, in the day I eat of it, I'll be like God knowing good and evil, see? And I won't be punished. So if I don't listen to that voice, so there's there's this whole safety bonding around these voices that can make it very scary for us if we stop listening to them. But all of it is a lie. And so that's the challenge. The challenge is to work through the anxious parts. The challenge is to work through the, the fearful parts. And then these parts inside of us that have been silenced that need to be amplified the volume needs to be turned up it's the still small voice 
where you find the voice of God. And guess what? The God in the way that I'm speaking about it and using it, you can make that work in whatever framework perceptions you're at right now. But I'm talking about in the way uh, the Four Agreements talks about it is you are God. God's such a problematic word, but the voice you need to listen to, the voice that can correct your perceptions, if you go read the story in 1 Kings 19, the voice that can correct your perceptions is the still small voice, the quiet voice. What would happen if that little quiet voice said, I know, do this, try this, think this, talk like this. What would happen if you just did some of those things? What would happen if you just amplified that voice? So again, to sum this up, because my hour is about up, but to sum this up, or it is up, amplifying the still small voice inside you is where you'll find your real authentic self. And declaring more on resisting the devil, kicking out the angry voice, the judgmental voice, the shaming voice, the condemning voice, not just against you, but against other people as well, because it's the same figure in a different cloak. Like, it's not that you are just justified in everything that you do, and that's because I'm not listening to the inner critic anymore, but I still feel superior to all these people out here, and if all these other people out here would just do right, then my life would be okay. No, that's not the thing. So please understand, If I'm going to leave you with this last thought. Your mission in life is to work on your internal world and make it heaven. Your unique singular point of consciousness or I'm actually saying the opposite of what a lot of spiritual and religious teachers teach and say. Your ego, your I, your self is your project. And it is your job to make that place heaven on earth. Do you ever notice how in the comic strips, when a person is thinking, they always put it in a cloud? Why do you think that is? Because symbolically, that's telling us something. The heaven that you live under is the heaven that's been created by the thoughts in your own mind. Is it cloudy in there? Is it dark in there? Is there a storm going on in there? Or is it a bright sunny day in there? Or maybe you like the rain. Whatever it is, my point is you're responsible for creating that space. And that's really the only thing you can do. Listen to me. Whatever your social mission or social issue is, you can contribute your voice to what you feel passionate about. But you also need to understand you will not be the one to change it. You'll not be the one to change it. Say it this way. The world was effed up before you got here. It's effed up now. And it's going to be effed up when you die. So use your voice. Use your vote. Use your, you know, promote whatever. But if that becomes you, if that becomes your mission, you're missing it. Your mission is to make the most beautiful internal environment that you possibly can, to make heaven on earth for you inside of you. And then once you do that, when the world meets you, the world's going to be better. Because you will never, if you think you can harness the dream of the world and bring it into submission by your ranting and raving on Facebook or posts or um, conversations or, um, that's a very grandiose idea. And so one of, you know, we thought we were going to change the world with religion and preaching the gospel. Um, Very grandiose idea. It's actually an interject. You got that dream from somewhere. So I just want to leave you with that. I want to take the pressure off of you to change the world. You ain't going to do it. Change your world. Change your environment. Spend the time doing the inner work and creating for you a space of heaven on earth. This is Aaron Tomlinson. Thank you for watching this Sunday Morning Live. Again, if you like what I'm doing, please go to my YouTube channel, subscribe. We have a Facebook group called New Day Global. It's on my Facebook page, which is public, and you can join that group. Um, please remember to answer the questions uh, cause, so that we can admit you as a member. It's a private group. Um, 
And if you want to support our work, there is a link to the PayPal. Please consider supporting our work uh, so that we can put this stuff out here. I've had people tell me recently that one thing that sets this program apart and sets what we're doing here apart is um, that there are real solutions being provided. A lot of people in deconstruction, a lot of people uh, in the religious trauma recovery space are just venting their pain and their hurt, and they're being that voice that I was talking about criticizing, but they're not offering real solutions. And so it blessed me and pleased me to have three or four people tell me this week uh, <clears throat> that um, – Sorry, I just saw Don's comment. Uh, hard to hear as an MSW, must save the world. Yeah, um, yeah, I've been hearing that from uh, students that are in that program, that that's really drilled into them. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Don. Um, MSW, I love that. Must save the world. Love that so much. I got a last one. Oh, yeah, if you want to support us, please consider. Uh, but I had three or four people tell me, you know, what, what sets what you're doing apart is you're offering people real solutions and practical answers. And uh, so that that's what we want to do. Um, we want to make it as available as possible. And so I will be creating some courses and selling some courses and selling some subscriptions and stuff. But that's going to be way down the road. Uh, so if you can help us with this transition, that would be awesome. Um, again, the donation goes to our ministry, New Day Ministries, overseen by a board of directors. It's not coming directly to me. Um, not that that should matter. But, again, I want to thank everybody that's given and helped. So, anyway, God bless you. Be at peace uh, and fall in love with yourself.